All right, Greg. So here we are, man. Eclectic Company. It's uh, we're dropping this. It's live. It's, it's actually happening. Yeah. There's been a few delays, but I'm telling you, it's going to be worth the wait. It's awesome. I, you know, some people have asked me when I've told them about this project is uh, how many shit jokes are going to be on this show, given uh, that they came to us through bad counsel. So, Greg, how many shit jokes are going to be on these next uh, several episodes? Well, I'm not committing to anything exactly, but I'll say, you know, (laughs) if if you get an over-under from somebody you're you're betting with, I I would take the under. You know, I I would tend to think that. I mean, that's why we're doing this, right? Because through our other podcasts, we've met so many amazing people who are, you know, serious artists who just happen to like kind of uh, the, the silly bad counsel humor that we put out every week. And we wanted to talk to them, but, you know, to try to get some of our guests right. to fit within the context of Bad Council was just impossible. And so we said, you know what? Hey, we paid for these microphones, so we might as well put them to use and, uh, and get to know some of these cool people who've been uh, so kind to us and so supportive of our other creative efforts. Return the favor. I love the fact that we're not limiting ourselves either on, on who we're talking to, but folks that have uh, really kind of been... Uh, deep in the creative process, definitely we find them interesting. And we've got mm-hmm. we've got a metal band out of Montreal, Venacava. We've got a published author, David Crow, who wrote this fantastic memoir. We've got recording artist Little Scream, who also is Laurel Sprengelmeyer in her her daily life, and an accomplished visual artist. You know, an American living in Canada. Uh, she has some really cool and interesting perspectives to share. Exactly. And then Stone, right? Same thing. Just a a Renaissance person extraordinaire who's a writer, who's an actor, who is a podcaster, who has one of the best voices on the planet, in my opinion, but also just seems to be a wonderful, wonderful human being at her core. So I'm excited. And she came from West Virginia. So who would have have counted on any of those (laughs) things being true? Exactly. (laughs) So we're not going to be totally without humor on this podcast. So fans of our other show, you know, this is more serious, but we're naturally fun and playful people sit where i get a good signal all right but i i do quite a bit of stuff down i mean not quite a bit but i have like a little guitar set up right here um you know and a little like cushion for meditation and whatnot it's a cool. it's a small area but this is like yeah it, it's it's nice to have this little zone separate zone in our house um because we're in ser- pretty serious lockdown here in Quebec mm. right now. So Portland too. I think, uh, uh, Greg, you're in Florida, so obviously yeah. it's a little more, you know, wild, wild, uh, not wild, wild west. But Anything like, goes. <laughs> right? it's, like there, it's like there's no pandemic at all. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just stick your head in the sand and ignore it. Personal little pandemics. But I've heard if you don't believe in it, it doesn't exist. So it's, <laughs> you guys are safe. You're, you're safer right. than all of us. Right, exactly. That's why Santa stopped showing up, I guess. Yep, exactly <laughs> why. Exactly yeah. why, Greg. You know, Laurel, you know, having se- listened to your music now for a couple of years and really enjoying it and then learning that you're also a visual artist, um, it, it leads to a question that I, I have for a lot of artistic people that I meet. You know, Tim and I are both big fans of the art. You know, I, I feel like I know a lot about music and literature and things like that, but it's it's a love of the arts. You know, I, I've never felt that I had... Um, you know, really an artistic side within me. So my question is, you know, at what point uh, as a young woman or as a, as a girl, did you kind of know that you had artistic ability uh, or did you have to kind of discover it? I mean, I think I was fortunate to grow up in an environment where, um, well, I mean, first of all, it was kind of feral. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the, then, like, but even in my very, my early years, which were less feral, there was always music in the house and 
kind of an encouragement of creativity. And I remember having this little chalk drawing set when I was really young, like four or something, and drawing a picture of grass in the yard. And I felt like it was such a perfect picture of the grass and it made me so happy. And I just really, I just remember having those feelings. I just remember remember from a really young age being really affected by paintings. I, I got really obsessed with, my grandmother had some great art books and I loved looking through this Da Vinci book. There's that, you know, that famous painting, The Woman with an Ermine. Um, it has this very, you know, black backdrop and then this really striking woman with an ermine around her shoulder, kind of, or um, that she's holding. And I just, just stared at that for so long, trying to figure it out and figure out why I love to look at it. And mm. um, yeah, so I, I think it, for me, it was really, it was quite natural and it was quite young. That, of course, being said, you know, I grew up in a very um, working class environment. And so, you know, you could, you could love art. That's one thing. But then what do you do with that? That's like, that took me a long time. And I think I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> like <laughs> mm-hmm. how, how you, how you figure out how to, you know, make that work in the world. But, um, but at least knowing that I connected to it was, was, that was the easy part. And you know, if I'm hearing correctly, it was the visual art that first kind of, you know, ignited your, your passion for it. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would say like, um, I'm a visual artist first. And, you know, I have actually, my training is in visual art, um, not in music. I think there, there's like, um, there's quite a bit of crossover, creatively speaking, but, um, but I definitely feel a lot more solid in my skills, my skill set as a visual artist, even though I've, I've, you know, done that publicly less. Are you drawing on from that same kind of artistic reservoir within you for both visual and, and musical art, or are they distinct? It's like, I mean, it's funny because that's a question I've been asked, you know, over the years. And it's kind, it's kind of both, but kind of different. And that's one of those things that's really hard to uh, articulate because I think the best of anything I've ever managed to do comes from a place that my conscious mind doesn't fully have control over necessarily. Although, you know, you kind of pull it out. It's like going fishing a bit but then instead of killing the thing you bring out i mean sometimes that happens sometimes you kill the thing that you bring up but then other times you catch a thing and then you can kind of put it in a hopefully you know put it in an environment where it can grow and turn into something you know that you with your that you cultivate so so probably at some level yes but but at at my best it becomes the hardest to articulate and so i don't really know to be honest <laughs> Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, that's really one of the things that I'm interested in learning from, from the artists that we talk to is, you know, I, I had an idea that I would have liked to have been an artist of some sort, you know, but I, I just had this internal knowledge that um, I didn't have the capability for it, but I had a love and appreciation for it. So that was good. Mm-hmm. I mean, comedy is art as well, though. I mean, you know, there's the art of words and the art of, you know, being able to look at situations through that lens and to be able to find humor is also it's also creativity at the end of the day it's you know creativity manifests itself in many ways and I mean there are plenty of people I know myself included who wish they were more funny and that takes a different type of quickness to be able to respond to situations as they're unfolding but real art I mean I just this week started getting pretty obsessed with 
Armando Iannucci, who um, I think he, he's probably best known for directing V. Oh, okay. Yeah. But he has this show that came out. I saw it for the first time last night and you guys should check it out. Everyone who ever listens to this should stop listening to the podcast immediately and look up the Armando Ionescu. Am I saying his last name right? Iannucci, sorry. <laughs> Armando Iannucci show. It is this, he's a comedian and he, it's just, it's really tough to describe. So I won't describe it entirely. But it's just a sketch comedy show, but it's so profound and so absurd all at the same time. But okay. it's like deeply rooted in something kind of real and and just like wild. And it can't. I. I. You can just w- watch it on YouTube now. It's. It, I don't even think it's like maybe it's syndicated somewhere properly. But um, but I I watched it and the first thought I had was why didn't I know about this already? Why doesn't everybody know about this? But apparently it came out like right at the same time as September 11th. And then the world was, it was one of those things, cultural phenomenon, you know, that were ill-fated. Swept aside. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. For, for good reason. The world had other things to talk about, but, um, but anyways, I'm just, I'm just discovering as a (laughs) discovering, as I say that show, but you know, just that's really making me think of comedy as art. I mean, at its, at its best, it absolutely is. Yeah. And Greg is, he can take anything and make it funny. Like he, you know, it's, and, and sometimes it's the most painful stuff that he, he actually finds the, the, I think the funniest stuff for. Oh, it's, it, it's a coping mechanism. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, growing up in a less than idyllic childhood, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it gives you comfort and you need those light moments to break the tension that you may feel at home. You know? Yeah, absolutely. As, as my little brother used to say, you know what they say when life gives you dead kittens. Make lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. There you go. <laughs> you know, talking about, you know, that show coming out when it did, but you came out with Speed Queen, you know, right before, uh, you know, the pandemic. And, you know, I think you were gearing up for a tour, right? I Well, I mean, I, I played like one festival in February and was kind of figuring out what the rollout was going to be for the year and then the pandemic hit. But to be honest, I mean, in my case... I was really wanting to ramp down touring at least and like just kind of approach things a little bit differently. And I had been feeling that way for a while, but just having a lot of anxiety about changing and what that looked like and figuring it out. And then the the pandemic hit and forced that. And so for me, it came at a moment where it felt like, oh, this is actually really healthy, a healthy way for me to take this time without internalizing it as if like I'm a failure for not, you know, going after this opportunity or going after this thing and, you know, and maybe saying yes to things that I didn't feel like saying yes to, or, or, you know, conversely like chasing things in a way that you kind of have to do like the the hustle that's inevitable. And, um, and it was just felt, it's just felt really healthy for me for the most part to step away from the hustle, um, in that sense and just, um, yeah, reconnect with music still working on music and writing music and, and, you know, actually gearing up to start doing a little bit of recording again. But, um, but just, I, I, it was a, it was well-timed for for me selfishly. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, I've thought a lot about musicians during the pandemic and, and the, the hustle of being a working musician and, mm-hmm. and selfishly, I love to see shows. I love to see live music and, uh, I know it's been challenging, but you're you were talking about um, 
you know, really making that tr- transition with with streaming services and kind of the death of records as we knew them. What does that hustle look like, you know, now for a working musician? God, I mean, I can't even say that I know. Like, if I knew that, I would be making a lot more money as everybody, you know, would. I mean, I think that there are some people who are better, better positioned for that than others. I've always, you know, I'm a naturally introverted person. So I've always struggled with social media um, and with, you know, like I love, like I love having conversations like this, but anything that's not being asked of me directly, like, like if, if like someone called me every day and had me forced me to interact or engage with things, you know, on different, you know, publicly then that would feel more naturally, but just on my own, I just don't have the motivation normally. So, um, so I think for, for, for me, I mean, that's always would have been and will be its own kind of thing, its own kind of challenge. But I think, you know, for people who are really comfortable engaging there, there's like, there's so many more opportunities and it's actually far more democratic in some ways. So, I mean, I think like, it's, it's just like a, a shifting, it's a shifting time. There's still definitely a lot of opportunity out there for people who feel, um, who enjoy and for whose art kind of extends into those medias mediums naturally um as far as i can tell and you know there's still like once people can play shows again once we can all play shows and go to shows again that's that's still going to be there um but but yeah i mean it's 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 changing a lot and i feel like you know 10 to 15 years from now it'll be unrecognizable Mm. in some respects partially unrecognizable you know in terms of like how people are experiencing, you know, experiencing and participating in music. What, what do you mean, like through social media, or are you thinking yeah, other things? Yeah, I feel like a, well? like a com- a combo of just like you know the pandemic pushing more people like hyper driving a little bit the push to live online and the you know the comfort that we all have now with doing a lot more on we're on Zoom all the time mm-hmm. or like just you know, all of these like digital platforms and also then, you know, with virtual, like with VR kind of experiences, then dovetailing into that, I do feel like that's gonna be, I I mean, I would be surprised if it didn't end up kind of moving that way um, a little bit. Like um, if you look at, you know, some of the NFT art that's happening right now and the participation in that whole kind of scheme, you know, part of things of, of like, yeah, of just like a, a, a big part of, music and cultural experiences kind of moving possibly into that kind of realm of expression which is like super creative and and an opportunity i think especially for you know like i said for certain types of people and certain types of artists but i'd like to think at the end of the day people still want to you know be in a room with other people getting sweaty and listening to music together there's you know there's like a catharsis there's a religious catharsis in that that i don't think will ever go away you know from the human experience I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, you you mentioned like the hyperdrive effect of uh, the pandemic, and that's so well stated. I've thought about it myself. You know, as we're moving in a direction in society of ever increasing uh, dependency on technology, but still, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around the kind of dystopian visions of the future that you know people were isolated in their homes, existing in a virtual sense. But the pandemic has made it seem uh, infinitely more. Uh, likely or or, le- or possible uh, to happen a lot faster, and it feels like it has accelerated the progress of technology. Yeah, so I mean, we'll, we'll see. No, no one can know, but definitely, like what what what's normal for kids of this like younger generation or the kids growing up in this 
pandemic will be a lot different than it is for, you know, any of us. So they're just going to have a whole other comfort level um, in terms of how they interact with these things. Yeah. It's so true though, in terms of just how comfortable they are with the communicating, connecting with people online, becoming friends with someone they've never physically met or spent time with, you know, which, which is what I'm used to. Um, I do see that. And, you know, I even think about some of the communities that are kind of forming around just the Instagram uh, space that Greg has created for our other show, that there's connections being made now. Um, And uh, I think recently uh, one of my sons met someone that he'd been friends with for, you know, several years, but had never met face-to-face. And it was a big thing about meeting face-to-face. So you're right. Maybe from a generational standpoint, it does make a difference. Like pen pals. But yeah, just like, like the, if, as if it was like a lot easier to have like hundreds of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's my daughter, uh, you know, she's 17 and I, I do see like her viewing now after this year, like personal interaction with people in, in the same physical space as as almost the same type of novelty that I would have viewed an interaction like that we're having right now, you know, Mm -hmm. virtually, you know, she is so comfortable in that virtual existence that has been, you know, she had chosen, but now has been really thrust upon her in a, in a very significant way that, um, you know, I, she gets a kick out of going to school. And and that was never something that really, (laughs) you know, the prospect of which never really excited me. It's like, Oh yeah, I get to go go to school. Yeah. Yeah. No, like hard, hard to relate to in some ways, but I mean, God, I, I also feel like talking about the pandemic is so like, I try to be careful about it now, especially because, you know, two, three, hopefully six, maybe even a year, however long it will be like, we're all going to be absolutely allergic to talk, you know, hearing about it for a while, I think, um, right, just, right. you know, like I, I, I already find myself doing that. I have to admit, you know, that unless it has something to do with like people's immediate safety and well-being, if, you know, if I'm listening to a program or the turn on, you know, the radio or something like that, um, I just kind of like, I just kind of switch it off if it, if it goes there. Cause I, I, I just feel like, Oh God, you know, like it's, it's, there's, there's only so much of that you can, you can absorb, even if it is like impacting all of our daily lives in a huge way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So as a, your creative expression began or your recognition of it was in, was in the visual arts. And, and I mm. actually watched you um, on social media, teach us how to paint a ghost into a painting. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, a, it, was it was great. Um, and I felt really engaged. You actually made me feel like I was right there with you. Um, and then the punchline was the best. Well, I mean, it was pretty awesome that a real ghost showed up. Yeah. Was, <laughs> I was not expecting that at all. It was, it was great. That was great. So when did, when, you know, did music have a similar uh, place in your life? In my twenties, I, you know, I worked on music and I worked on my visual art. Um, but I was really, um, you know what, I I was just kind of like figuring out how to get by in the world. And, um, you know, I moved to Canada when I was 21 and I, like, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I just, you know, I was like, um, I was dating someone moved here together and then I just kind of um partly because you know I was always in this weird visa situation where I kind of you know I I I did a program at Concordia where I I say I majored in getting a visa in Canada and then (laughs) you know I passed I got that visa and then I you know got like different jobs that were always kind of limited to like okay like 
you can get your visa will let you get this job here and then <laughs> you know and i and i loved being in montreal but i just sort of ended up skating around the things that would let me stay in canada um whether over the table or under the table or whatever just like kind of surviving but being happy you know and having a lot of fun and you know for the most part just you know being really happy to be able to live in montreal um that i i didn't I, you know, my creative things kind of took a back seat in, in terms of just, you know, I, w I went with whatever I could do, whatever would help me kind of get to the next, just, you know, get to the next visa through the next job or whatever it was. And, um, and then I, you know, there's that pressure that happens, I think, and, you know, for all people in their twenties that like, if you haven't started on a path or, you know, there's all this kind of thing of like being the young, whatever, fill in the blank. Yep. And I think we all face that pressure. And there's this thing that happens when you have, you know, aspirations of any sort and you hit a, a, an age where you, you realize, oh, God, I'll never be that young fill in the blank because I didn't fill in the blank, you know, didn't get there. Yeah, yeah didn't didn't get there in time. You know, I started to feel that pressure kind of well up. And so, you know, it was like my late 20s that I just, you know, I started I, you know, really started kind of buckling down and going also going through kind of like a big life period change and um i i worked three jobs and saved up as much money as i could like i just like ate lentils every day and um basically so that i could just save up a, enough for me to take off of work for a little bit so that i could or, or you know or at least work less so that i could you know i i invested in myself basically um so that i could just try to give myself a chance you know and for me, that looked like I, um, I, I was working on music and art simultaneously at that time. And I, and it's basically like music was the one that music was the thing that started to catch, you know, and I, I, I did a couple of demo songs into a Skype microphone in my computer. I had nothing really, you know, I just, but yeah, I figured like, okay, this is it. I have to make do with whatever I have. It's, it's kind of like a now or never. There's not gonna, if I, if I wait until when I have this, then I'll do that. You know, I, I, I'd been feeling that way for years and that, you know, those things just never happen. You have to make them happen. So, so yeah, so I just, I, I, I made a couple demo songs and then through that, um, that's what kind of started to help me put together my first record. And, um, and then I realized, you know, music, like I can be a painter when I'm 70 but I don't want to be a touring musician when I'm 70, you know? So, so it kind of, you know, I, 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 I painted all alongside, you know, whenever I could and little bits here and there, um, you know, over the years, all the years that I, you know, out on the road doing little scream, but, um, but it just really felt like, you know, I, I did get enough of um, just enough of a toehold through that first album, you know, through some great luck and through, um, Richard Reed Perry, who produced that, came on to produce that first record, which really also changed things, you know, for me, I think that was like a big, a, a real lucky break. Oh yeah. But you know, either way I had like really good, there were a lot of good creative, there was a lot of great creative energy happening in Montreal at that time. Anyway, it, it, it was just like a good, it was a good moment for me to have, to have done that and put that out there, you know, and, and then here I am. Well, I have, I have some, you, you said a lot of things that uh, evoke other questions in my mind, but I, I, before we go on, uh, your performing name, Little Scream. Yeah. You know, 
how did that arise? Was that a, uh, a nickname given or? Uh... It was like, I mean, part of it was like, it was, it was one of those things that, you know, I guess I didn't think enough about realizing that it, it was going to stay with me for as long as it, as it had. I mean, cause at that time, my little sister and I used to work on music together. She still, she still lives in Illinois um, and did at that point too. But, um, but we would always kind of get together and make up a band name whenever we got together. And it always had big or little in the title of it. And that was kind of like, I, I don't know if that was a thing where you guys grew up. Um, maybe Greg, since you're in Florida, you hear it more, but like when, when it's just like, Oh, this is big, big D, this is little hat. This is, it's like a, you know, you just, it's a lot more colloquial way of naming people. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh actually uh-huh. and lived uh, there for most of my life. And, and my, one of my brothers is to this day, little Paul, we call him. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of like a, a thing. And there was a lot of that in our family for whatever reason. Um, like all of my dad's friends had nicknames and a lot of them were like bigger, little nicknames anyway. So, um, so yeah, you know, Lily and I, our bands would be big unit or <laughs> little leaf or something, you know, we just, and so I, that was part of it was just sort of um, like a lighthearted thing. But then I think also for me, I, I, like I said, I mentioned previously, I guess, um, I bet I felt quite like closed in and more introverted naturally. And, you know, I felt this welling up of all, you know, all the years where I had kind of put my creative aspirations and, and ambitions on the back burner. And it just felt like it had to come out. But I, I didn't feel like it was an aggressive thing. Um, it was it was a little scream. It was just like a it was still a scream, but it's just like just enough to you know like a a, a a quiet, quietly screaming. That's what I felt like. I, you know, my life felt like at that moment. You know what you describe uh, earlier about kind of questioning, hey, am I getting to the place that I wanted to be quickly enough? You know, am, am I where I want to be or where I thought I would be? I think that resonates with many people. I, I remember feeling washed up at like 26, you know, mm-hmm. and, and little did I know that I had so much longer to live. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you started to to really put that plan into motion, saving the money, really devoting yourself more to your art, did you have uh, a concept of what that would look like? What success would look like? Was it commercial or artistic or some intersection? I mean, I'm sad to say that not sad necessarily, but um, my bar for myself was so low at that time. It was just just doing it was a huge thing for me, and I remember writing on. And I was also just so broke all the time. <laughs> And I remember like writing on a piece of paper, like maybe I could make a thousand dollars from music or something or like, you know, it's just, it was just like, it was like, it was like, skip, like, it was so like, it was so low. And I really didn't know how anything worked. You know, I remember um, giving that this like little demo I made to a, um, just like three or four people, but I got shows out of just those, you know, three or four things. And one of, one of them, um, a guy invited me to a festival to play a festival in Belgium, I think. Wow. Um, or, or Greenland even. I, I can't remember if it was one of those two places. Maybe it was Greenland. And, um, and I said no. And the only reason I said no was because I didn't realize they paid you. to. Like, I mean, this is how, <laughs> it, sound, it sounds ridiculously naive, but I just didn't have like, somehow I didn't understand how anything worked. And I was just so 
happy to be able to have the opportunity to do something, anything with my music. It is ridiculously <laughs> naive. And, um, you know, I think I, I still have the same ambition, which is I still want to make a record that feels like what I aspire towards something feeling like, and that makes people feel a certain way. That's my, my ultimate real ambition. And I'm still working on that. And I'll work on that for as long as I work on music, you know? Um, but yeah, I, th I think that was my, my initial one was just, just doing it was a success. So by that metric, I've like, I, I've far exceeded anything that I expected, you know, when I started doing music and I, I did def definitely catch a couple lucky breaks early on that helped, helped turn it into more, more of a thing than I think I ever anticipated it would be. But then from the other perspective, as soon as you get out there, you know, and I, you know, I start having a lot of like friends and colleagues who are like successful from a lot, a lot more successful from a lot more of the, you know, whether it's like all the metrics, you know, all of the more obvious ones. Um, and so, yeah, I always just remind myself of that, you know, that I've like wildly exceeded my initial expectations, <laughs> no matter where I end up, I've already done that. Um, yeah, I, I, my ambition is, I hope, you know, always and at, at like at my best the ambition should always be for the the art and the thing you're making you know and like the rest of it is just kind of it's not it's not fully in your control you know well, that that resonates that sounds to me as a fan of art um what it should be it's the the success is the creation and you know and i probably there probably are artists in every medium who set out with a particular ambition from a commercial standpoint and they may be wildly successful but you know to me it's that's the cart before the horse if you're thinking about commercial success and it's just it's just an achievement to to make art that that resonates with people yeah i i, I think so too so i i think there are some artists for whom commercial success is part of their art and that's part of what they're um going for and that that is an art and it's something i respect I, I respect artists who go towards that in a way that's like very thoughtful and very driven and, you know, all, all of it. And, you know, and who make that happen for themselves, but it, it's, you know, it, it, that, that works for, for people for whom that's their, their thing in their way, you know, and like I, and any time I've ever tried that sort of thing based on the advice of, of friends or otherwise, you know, I, it's never, never worked as well for me so you know so i i think i've comported myself pretty professionally in a reserved manner but if you'll indulge me now i i want to have a little bit of a fanboy moment interaction with awesome. me awesome okay, okay. Sure. it took you 30 minutes that was good greg i was i was impressed yeah well you know my wife tells me that greg don't you know reserve yourself for a minute <laughs> let them let them assess and realize you're not frightening so i mentioned that i um i discovered your music. Accidentally, I was living in Portland and I, I walked everywhere. I didn't have a car. And so I was listening to a lot of Sirius XM. And I don't know for sure, but I think that I heard you on like Coffee House or the Spectrum or, mm -hmm. or something like that. In the song, the, the specific song that I heard first that I really became enamored with and am till this day is The Heron and the Fox. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. I, I listened to that and, um, you know, it evoked um such a strong reaction it uh i felt connected to other 
forms and forms of art and pieces of music that I was like, yeah, that's, that feels like this is in the company of, of those other things that I love, like Lawrence Ferlin Getty as a poet. Mm. Oh, you know? that's, that's an awesome reference. Thanks. And George, uh, John Wesley Harding, he, yeah. who did some albums of like bardic traditional music, you know, mm. it was like, Heron and the Fox just felt so stripped down to me and like it was uh, a slice of life, mm. you know. And so I'd love, uh, to the extent you're wanting to, to talk about that particular song and its inspiration. Yeah, well, um, I'm, first of all, I'm thank you and, and I'm happy that that reached out to you. Um, definitely that, I mean, I feel like that song was very pivotal in me becoming a musician. And also it really was coming from it really reflected my life. Um, so some, some parts of it are quite literal, um, but all, even the parts of it that aren't literal are very true emotionally. And um, yeah, and I had, you know, I was like, I was just coming out of this phase, kind of going through, a, you know, a really difficult long-term relationship breakup, kind of, you know, at the same time of facing like, feeling like a failure, I guess, of, you know, where I was at, just kind of really not knowing what my next move in life should be. And just feeling very like feeling hopeful, but not having anything to base that hope on, except for my hope itself, kind of. And it's weird because that song kind of then became the vessel for that hope. You know, I, um, so I wrote it, it's one of those songs that kind of spilled out, as they say, which you can't ever predict or, you know, ask for something like that to happen. But, um, but I, well, at first kind of like the experience that it came out of, I was um, back home in the Midwest visiting my family over New Year's and I was drinking pretty heavily at that time. And, um, I was out with my cousin, Andrea in Dubuque, Iowa. And, um, and it, if you not go, much else to do, right? Not much else to do. And if you, um, but her, we were saying with my uncle, her dad, who lives in East Dubuque, and the thing with East Dubuque, its whole, at least at that time, its whole downtown economy was based on the fact that bars closed a half an hour later on the Illinois side. It was right across the river. So um, same as there's a snowstorm and um, someone was going to drop us off at my uncle's house, but the snow was so bad that the person couldn't drive up the hill to get us home. And so we just were kind of stranded on the main street um, at a strip club. And I was, you know, buying, and it was like, it was like a snowstorm. I felt really bad for the um, girls that were working that night because they weren't, you know, there was hardly anybody, like nobody was in there. Ani and I were the only ones in there and it's new year's and they're working, you know? And so like, I was, you know, I was just buying them drinks and like, we we're just hanging out because, <laughs> because of that. But like, that's kind of where it, that's where that song started, which is very, you know, literal towards the, the lyrics there of that first um, verse. Yeah, it felt like beat poetry or like a Kerouac story to me. Like, you know, and that was one of my questions. Did you really buy shots for the strippers at the bar? I did. Yeah, absolutely. And you told them they were magic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I told the shots. Were, yeah, absolutely. And they, and, the, and, we, and I felt like they were kind of magic, too. I was hoping that they would be magic because I was like, oh, God, we all we all need some magic. Um, I think, yeah, one of her. Well, she said at least her dancing name was Chocolate was one of them. And she had a golden tooth. She had a beautiful golden tooth. And so, yeah, it's, it's actually quite like, you know, it's, it's very like that, that first part, that first verse is, you know, quite autobiographical. Well, 
I felt like I was there. Like I could imagine from my own memories, kind of a scene like that, you know? And then, so you, you brought me in as a listener to that scene very intimately. And then, you know, you, you know, you wondered what she wished for and and you, you just mentioned that you, I I just wish for you, you know, whoever that you happened to be, but uh, it was just, that's the type of song that really, makes me think and uh, gets my mind working and you know and I assign all kinds of meaning to it for myself personally but it's 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 amazing to be able to talk to the artist who created it and and to learn I mean I I felt like it had to be a very literal song because it was so well done and it it couldn't be just something like I'll make up a story about something you know yeah yeah and it's like it's funny because I I mean it ended up being like at that moment it felt like a like just more indicative of like, oh God, like I really don't know what I'm doing in my life right now. And this is like, look where I'm at kind of. And at the same time though, I just, there was some, there was some kind of gift or magic even in being able to turn that around, you know, like taking the, taking the dead kitten and making lemonade out of it. (laughs) Like Like really like, and I think that that was like a, that's what I was trying to figure out very with great earnesty at that point in my life so so that's something i will say for my my first record is that it's like an extraordinarily earnest piece of folk art even you know to an extent because i only had so much like training or ability in music but like what i was like the what i was trying to say far exceeded my ability to say it but i think that there's this like you know gap and i i definitely feel that um that, and but that's where the tension kind of comes in a good sort of tension and and that song i feel like i i'll always feel um i think proud that i wrote that song and that and it felt like a gift kind of of you know for me of being able to figure out how to transform that experience and and it's funny because it was easy to write it but since then i've found it challenging to be able to do the same thing it's not something i can do all the time you know that degree of transparency yeah is is like it's it's quite vulnerable and quite you know it's like a yeah if if i could do that all the time also i think my career might you know might have gone a different way but it you know honestly it's just like emotionally speaking that you know there was just something that um at that moment and time that allowed for that kind of uh transparency and clarity i guess and if listeners haven't heard the song i encourage you to listen to you know, your entire catalog but that was the song that and it sticks with me to this day I, I listen to it regularly and i also to me what added to the um the legitimacy of like that experience that i was hearing you sing about was the the video that you produced you know mm-hmm. uh you and the uh, you know it, it, i associate that song now with the autumn or the winter mm-hmm. you know you in the back of the car playing your acoustic guitar and and two two folks two friends in front kind of harmonizing and singing with you it's just so simple uh and for me it, it kind of evoked like uh, a mixture of uh feeling morose but also like you know just very part of that 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 day you know beautiful you know yeah, no, I, I have to um I have to hand it to Ian Cameron who um came up with the idea for producing that video. He, he's a, a friend, my my dear friend Denise's husband. And um yeah, and so so it was 
very it was freezing cold <laughs> so we could only do a couple takes but um but yeah I'm, I'm really i'm really happy with how that video turned out as well cool thank you for sharing that yeah of course i've really taken with your kind of pulling things together and in, in your visual arts and your music uh, when i learned about the cover of cult following that was fascinating to me and I, I thought you know it'd be really neat to hear kind of how you came up with the idea that you did uh in creating a 3d version of a piece of art and then stepping inside it mm -hmm. and um you know you would I, I picked up a quote that you had said you were talking about the cult in brazil that you went to visit mm -hmm. and this is i'm paraphrasing i don't have a direct quote but basically you said the magnetism of ideas taking shape and pulling people into the center like a black hole. And then, you know, I saw a piece of art that you did where you talked about you can't really tell if the person is um, or the artwork's coming towards you or you're going into the artwork. And it's just, it's this connection that you, you keep kind of talking about like physics or something like that. I just thought that was such a cool idea. Can you talk a little bit about what you were thinking there and how you were able to pull that off? Yeah, I mean, all of those things are are sort of interrelated in that, like, after I got back from this trip, well, so so I was in this um, intentional community in Bahia in Brazil, um, where um, and some dear friends of mine, um, I can't even, I'm like trying to even remember how to make any of this make sense as to why I was there. I won't explain why I was there. I was just there in this intentional community in in northern brazil where um yeah it it was when my friend had visited there previously i think it was just a bunch of hippies you know living kind of leaving you know living in an, an eco kind of community um and you know practicing some sorts of um you know spirituality but in a pretty chill way and they were returning for the second time and i was coming with them because they had told me you know really talked it up and when we got there, it was, it had the whole vibe of the place had switched a lot more into cult mode. And you could just feel that starting to kind of gel in terms of, um, you know, the like what people did or were supposed to do and what like this, this thing. And there's a charismatic figure at the center of it. And she was really incredible. I'm making this story a lot longer um, than it needs to be because it's hard to give the context. But anyways, album cover point is. So we're, we're, I was in this place and they were all like, you know, teaching us how to read auras and do, you know, do all these things. And I, 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 I'm a person, I tr try not to judge and just experience. And if you just do that, there's, some, there's an awesome story everywhere you go. There's something incredible happening at the grocery store. There's something awesome happening everywhere. If you're, if you're just, a, you know, have curiosity. Um, so I just, t t I was like, yep, let me, let me learn this. Let me teach me whatever you have to know. I'm, I'm, I'm here for that, you know? Mm. And, um, there was this filmmaker, this Brazilian filmmaker was, that was there. And every time we would, we were doing like exercises and every time we'd get paired, he would start seeing things. He's like, oh my God, this is like, I'm watching a film whenever I sit with you. And he would just start talking about these things. And it's his mind, of course, not, you know, but he's you know, in, in thinking or, com, you know, he's projecting it on as, you know, that this is like coming out of his mind. But one of the, mm -hmm. there were like a couple images that came up that for me just felt so rich for painting. And mm -hmm. one of them was this like me in a cave scenario. 
that he started to describe. And, and I got really into that. And when I got back, I started working on these paintings, this series of cave paintings, and one of which is like hmm. really large. And I, I'm, I'm still working on that as a, a thing, but like, like I, I made one that I made, I started working on one that was so large that you felt like you're falling into it. But that also like, you know, it's that thing that you're saying that physics kind of thing. Yeah. But for me too, there is just the like, you know, I, I even going back to that heron and the fox thing where you kind of like throw out a, throw out something and then catch it later on, you know, like for yourself. And so it was kind of, it was a little bit like that. I said, okay, this is, he's envisioning me in this place. Let me make that place real and see what that feels like, you know, like I'm up, I'm up for that. Let's go. And, um, and so I started, yeah, started this giant, the biggest painting I've ever worked on, um, which for me is like, you know, it's like seven feet by eight feet um, wide so that I could have that sense of falling into it. But I just really wanted to keep pushing it. So um, my, my friend, Michael Durlam in New York City is, um, he's a, an artist that works in a lot of different mediums and he does a lot of really awesome installation stuff. And he also does commercial work too. So he's really used to getting, you know, called and then building a set and taking it down, you know, in a day or two. And, um, you know, I told him about this idea that I had and within like a day and a half, we just built it together, um, based on whatever he had like lying around in his studio, pretty much <laughs> like they were just like paper mache and, you know, throwing things together. And he like built this, it, it was, it was just awesome. It was, it was awesome. And it looked so beautiful. I, I still love how it looked and, um, I'm like now like working again on some things like that kind of inspired by that experience. But, um, but yeah. And so I was just like, yeah, I'm stepping inside this thing. I'm, you know, like, I want to see how this feels and what happens. And I'm, I'm still, I don't know, like for as long as ideas are fun and interesting to me, then I just keep running with them. And, um, Anyway, so that's that's where that was a very long-winded answer to that. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to do a lot of editing. In I this. know, no, actually, <laughs> you you you're underestimating how interesting that was because yeah. you you were talking about you hear about something and then you experiencing it and, and it's it's different, and then but you also kind of combine this with this. There's this structure that was starting. You call it a cult-like feel, right? This is a structure of ideas that is starting to hem people in. And, and it's interesting because um, it's really hard to characterize your art, your musical art. You're not a folk singer. You have strong folk elements, you know, your first album, which again, talking about science, the golden record, right? Mm -hmm. that, that words or ideas can confine. And what you did was you actually took a visual art, made it three-dimensional, stepped inside of it to make it more real. And I just, I couldn't get around how neat that was. And I'd never uh, even heard of a musical artist doing something like that. So I thought it was a, a very neat, it was a neat expression of, you know, kind of the kind of imposition, this, this outside imposition or, you know, kind of creating this structure around somebody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To find out that it was a cave that someone else there had kind of uh, started to put around you anyway, and then you just kind of took that and owned it, I think is more interesting. So thank you for giving us the long form. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And I think like, yeah, I, I mean, I love following things, following interesting things. Um, but that's, I mean, you, you might ha like notice that I'm slow as fuck. Like, that's why, you know, it's like, it's like, it takes a long time to do things like that. And then I'm not always very good at, um, what's the word? Not like capitalizing. It's not the right word, but just 
you know, even sharing, you know, like what's going on or documenting the process of all the stuff I'm working on. And, and so, um, you know, I mean, that's what gives me, I, I just, I'm, I feel like endlessly privileged where I'm at right now, where I can just kind of follow, you know, different whims and curiosities and, and see where they take me and do my best to like do something with them and get them out there and, and finish things and whatnot. But like, but, um, but yeah, that's just like, that is the greatest privilege. I think the most privileged kind of life yeah. really. That's awesome. Do you, do you have, um, like a method or habits, uh, that you kind of go to as an artist, as a musician, you know, are you structured that, you know what, you know, I'm going to write or I'm going to paint rather every day from 10 AM till two. And on Thursdays and Fridays, it's all about music or is it just it's, kind of what grabs you? It's kind of like, it's kind of like a diet for me as in like, sometimes I'm super on it. And then other times I'm just like <laughs> eating the cake, right. you know? And so like, I will often, um, in my week it, it's cause I'm often almost always working on multiple projects, you know, to my own detriment probably, but like, I just don't, that's what keeps me excited. Um, so that's how I do it, but it just means everything kind of gets spread out and takes longer to move forward collectively. Um, but yeah, so I, I will often on a Sunday, I have, you know, like a, a weekly planner and I'll say, okay, from like eight till 10, I'm going to do the work on this thing. And then from, you know, I sketch it out and some weeks I'm really on it and I, I'm able to do it. And then other weeks it just totally falls apart and, you know, and it, it's a joke, but it, it's like, I, I always attempt and when I, when I, when I'm successful at doing that, um, I get the most done. And I'm also like, when I'm focused on one thing, then I'll get the most done as well. So, you know, like I had a painting show in October, November, and that was really helpful having that deadline. So, you know, then it was like really easy for me because I had a deadline that I would just say, you know, okay, every day I'm putting in 10, 12 hour days in my studio. And that's, you know, and, until I could get it done. And that felt awesome. And, you know, I'll do that when, when I'm working on a, a record fully, then, you know, the 10, 12 hours a day, I love, I actually love that. And it's when I don't have deadlines that my life kind of devolves into this like weird smorgasbord of like picking away at <laughs> different, too many plates. <laughs> well, I, I think that's good for aspiring artists to hear because, you know, I had a total misconception of what an artistic life was about. And it just seemed like, wow, frivolous and fun. And oh, by the way, I produced this or I made this. And so, you know, the more I, as I get older and learn more and read more, that, you know, it's that combination of following your instincts and your inspiration, but also channeling it to some degree. Yeah, you have to be, I think, well, in my experience, you have to be stubborn as fuck. Like, you just have to, you might work fast, you might work slow, but you just have to work. And you just have to not give up, not let go. And, you know, yeah. And, and eventually, and it does feel good to finish things, you know, finishing things feels really, really good, but along the way. And yeah, I, I think like, that's why I appreciate deadlines and, and, you know, the more other people you can implicate in your thing sometimes can help you. As an artist, and you're talking about, you know, being stubborn, being true to the idea, how are you able to kind of keep your artistic vision intact when you're working with so many people and in fact when i started to uh, understand who you worked with on your albums i mean there's some big names on there surf jen stevens when i saw that i thought oh my gosh you know 
Um, and, you know, and then several others, you know, obviously Kit Malone and then, of course, Tim Kingsbury um, and, um, and Sarah, too. And how do you work through others to get your vision out there? And what's that interplay like? Because I think when I'm working with others, sometimes I might, act, I might you know, acquiesce or, or think their idea might be better. And then, but in the end, it might change my vision of what, you know, what ultimately comes out. For me, the more I've matured, the more it's two things. It kind of like, first of all, yeah, a lot of times other people's ideas are better and that's great. You know, especially in music, like I, I'm not a drummer, so I have an idea of like a feeling that I like, but in terms of like really outlining a drum part, I, I actually like rely on someone who is a drummer and loves drumming to come in and help make that solid. There are some artists, you know, like Sufjan, for example, that you mentioned who are far more self-contained, you know, musically speaking, and can create these extraordinary worlds from top to bottom in their bedroom, more or less, you know, of course, like involving other musicians or people at, at different stages, but like who, who have this complete vision. For me, my music has started from writing and loving to write and loving the word. You know, I love Greg that you mentioned Ferlin Getty, like he's a, definitely an influence. Like that's, that's where it came from for me. And then, you know, and then singing and then, you know, whatever kind of support I could bring to myself as much as I could with, you know, through guitar or, or piano or whatever. Um, but yeah. So like listening to other people who are good at what they do and leaving space for that, that's part of the joy of music and collaborating in music. But then the other side of it too, is, you know, you just get to know what your vision is and what has to be just so for you, you know? And so it's kind of like a matter of picking what that is and holding that point. But then it's, it's like, um, my, my dad used to always say this expression when we were young, when things would be kind of like hectic or wild or like unpredictable, he'd just say rodeo. And <laughs> the thing with rodeo, I didn't, I didn't really understand what he meant for a long time, but then, but when I thought about it, the brilliant thing about that analogy, it, rodeo is that like you pick, you just hold on really tightly to one point mm. you pick the, and then the rest mm. of you, you just let it get kicked around. But you're, that's how, that's how you like make it in rodeo is that you just you just hold on tight to to the one spot that you've got that contact and so I feel like for me in music at least it's not about like necessarily getting letting yourself get kicked around enjoy, <laughs> right. if you can enjoy the ride you hold mm -hmm. on to your vision the thing that's like the that you can't let go of whatever the kernel mm -hmm. of, of yeah. truthfulness or or you know integrity or whatever you want to call it or you know whatever your vision is I guess. And then, um, and then just like see what happens, you know, like get people that you trust together in a room or, you know, like, and then, and, and yeah. And, and be open. Yeah. Like confident about what, you know, you need them to do if you know it. And mm -hmm. if you don't know it, that also, it takes another kind of confidence to have that mm -hmm. to say, oh, I don't know it. And that's okay. Like you're good at this. And I, I trust your vision. That's also part of the, the process. That's cool. You've you've mentioned now in the interview your sister, your brother, yeah, your, your parents. So, are yeah. they uh, your biggest fans? Are they supporters? Were they nervous about the idea of you embarking uh, on an artistic life? I think they they've always been supporters, but just I think they'd be supporters no matter what. Like I said, like I think like even their bar for success was just just like surviving and making it in the world and like not ending up in jail. Like even if I had ended up in jail. <laughs> 
they would they would <laughs> be like visiting me there and you know yeah. like you know it's just like it's it, i think like i know that they're really proud and happy that i've ended up getting out there and doing things and um yeah and i mean they all live i'm the only one who moved away um my dad and um my, my dad and mom separated when i was young but um right now you know they all live in the same town together still with my brother and sister who um my dad and my my dad and my brother are antique dealers oh wow I was messaging today with somebody from, um, I was ordering a book for my brother from a book, a local bookstore that I, I wanted the guy to give to my brother. And he said, uh, my brother's name is Neil. And he said, yep, I, I just saw Neil today. And I, I, uh, I gave him what he calls brown gold, yeah. like, <laughs> brown gold for my brother is free cardboard boxes for his eBay shipping. So it's like <laughs> I thought it was books. Brown gold, paper, paper, <laughs> free cardboard boxes, free cardboard boxes for his eBay shipping. My my mother was an antique. My mother's passed, but uh, she was an antique dealer. She had oh, an wow. antique shop, and so growing up, uh, every Saturday and Sunday, it was uh, I'm the youngest, and so I was kind of like an only child. After my much older, five older siblings all kind of moved on with their lives, and it was my mother and I going to estate sales, garage sales. And just kind of watching her negotiate to get the things that she loved. And uh, so, you know, that antique culture, I, you know, I still love the Antiques Roadshow. And it just, it's, it's, uh, it helps me to reminisce about my mom. Cool, cool occupation. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that I, I can, that I'm, I'm, that's, that's really cool to hear, actually. I, I absolutely can relate to the estate sales and the auctions and, you know, all of that stuff. I grew a new respect for my mom trying to watch her uh, negotiate, you know, uh, people down from 25 cents for a, you know, she was into dishes, glass and dolls were her thing. And so mm -hmm. she'd get excited if she found a, you know, a, 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 a teacup and it would be marked a quarter and she knew it was worth $9. But if sure, she insisted on negotiating it down to a dime. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but also at that time, you had to have a more encyclopedic knowledge about the things because it was like it was pre oh, yeah. the proliferation at least of that in that type of internet culture before all those antiques roadshows shows and stuff like For that. For sure. And so you really did have to know, you know, what the you know, you had to know your mom, for example, having her specialties like she mm -hmm. it, it's quite an encyclopedic knowledge you'd have to have to cover those bases. She she traveled with everywhere in a car Koval's guides. To various types of antiques, you know, right. they they were kind yeah. of the the standard publisher of antique books, and she would consult with them religiously. You know, I didn't appreciate uh, the effort and her acumen at the time. I was just kind of the tag along, embarrassed because you know they would advertise an estate sale to start at seven in the morning, and she'd show up at six thirty right. to try to get the best <laughs> stuff and be knocking on the door begging to get in. And I'm like, Mom, let's just wait. <laughs> That's some real antique inside baseball there, guys. It like is. The, you know, yeah. yeah. It is. But I know I know we're running short on time. I, I just I had one last question for you, Laurel. And this is um you, you talk about uh, the golden record and why why it took so long for you to get at, get it out. Um and you know, one of the things that I picked up on was that you said there was some anxiety about actually performing. And as a performing artist, that would be big. So could you maybe share how you were able to grapple with that and um, how you deal with that type of anxiety? Because obviously performance is so key to, as we talked about, you know, music. Yeah, I will share my experience as a what not to do 
for any young <laughs> aspiring artists out there. Um, so yeah, I, I made that record, but I had played very few shows and didn't really know how to play shows. And it wasn't just a lack of technical skill that was hindering me. It was also just the emotional skill of being able to stand in front of people and share what, especially at that time, what were very like emotive, um, vulnerable songs, you know, and usually in like bars where people are just like hanging out. And even if they're listening to your music, it's like, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very specific kind of skill to figure that out, to navigate that. I, and I just didn't know how to do it. I frankly, I didn't know how to do it. And then I got kind of pushed out into bigger stages, arguably than I should have, you know, um, early on in ways that definitely didn't help me out. And I just learned by doing it. And I, I learned my motto kind of became by default fail harder, Mm. just like get out there and just sort of like do it, you know, and just, and I have this, I did actually have this thing, you know, I, I, I said to myself like, okay, I I'm like figuring this out. And, but I'm unfortunately figuring it out in front of like, sometimes a lot of people, you know, if I really fail tonight, I hope that that's inspiring for someone vis-a-vis them looking at me and saying like, oh, I can do better than her. And I was like, okay, oh, wow. I offer that. I offer that freely, you know, like I hope at least it's like, I hope I can be inspiring on either side, you know, either by like nailing this or by like making someone feel like, oh my God, I could do a better job, which you probably could have. So it took me like quite a while of, of just doing that. And then also like, I just, I was so nervous that I ended up drinking too much too. And so that sometimes that would also impact my, um, my performance sure. ability. And I feel like it's really only with this, like my last, like kind of cycle of tours and like my last record, even that I feel like this, like kind of like, uh, this confidence and real like ease with performance in a way. Um, and that's also, again, being a, um, inherently more introverted person, but, um, but yeah, so I just I just learned by like fire. It was trial by fire and by trial and error and a lot of that trial and error being public and you know, and just getting out there and doing it. It's one way of doing things, but you have to like you you just have to develop a thicker skin and I think part of me wanted that too. Part of me like wanted the existential challenge of just like getting over that fear of failure that had hemmed me in for so long by failing. <laughs> <laughs> you know and just being like fuck it i'm like the dive you know just like bombing and I, i'm not gonna say it was all bombs but definitely like i i just i just fucking got out there and gave her I love it. and you know somewhere along the line got comfortable with it and loved it and stopped drinking as well but not after i had probably <laughs> burned some bridges and right. made some not super um favorable impressions in in important places and you know that's all just part of the part of part of the journey. <laughs> Failing harder—that's your you're you're helping people. You're making lemonades out of kittens for your, for your yes, yeah, exactly. For future artists, yeah. exactly, exactly. I did it so that you don't have to. It, it's interesting you mentioned like kind of the vulnerability of performing in like in a bar and, and having people so close, and and then moving to bigger venues like. Tim and I, the closest thing that we've ever come, we work in education. The closest thing that we ever come to is being on a stage and making a commencement speech for people. And, and, you know, I'd also conduct a lot of meetings with faculty members and staff members at my school. Um, And I find it far 
easier and less kind of daunting to speak to. Uh, I've spoken to rooms of 5,000 people. And I find that a lot easier on me because I'm an introvert as well than speaking to 10 people in a, in a room where I'm having regular, consistent eye contact with each and every one of them. I, I kind of gloss over the crowd, you know? Yeah, there there is something about, like, there's a critical number at which people, a crowd feels less individual and more collective. And in smaller, smaller crowds, smaller performances, there's definitely, um, those can be some of the best shows like the super intimate ones but you really just have to fully be in a thing all together and if not um then it can be the hardest you know because you're really you almost are feeling everyone's everything you know whether it's just they're like hanging out at the bar with their friend and you know not paying attention or they're being super there with you but like almost to a point of it being tough you know um it's yeah, it is. I think it is a little. You, there's a little more self consciousness. There can be more self consciousness sometimes in a smaller crowd than there is a larger one. Weirdly enough, I, I had a weird moment uh, a couple of years ago in Knoxville. I was uh, watching uh, the guitarist Eric Johnson. Mm, I'm not afraid. familiar with him. He, he had an album in the '80s called Cliffs of Dover, Dover, and he was he's a guitarist, but he also sang. And so I saw him at a very small theater in Knoxville, Tennessee. And just by, I was by myself and by circumstance, I was in a, like the first row and like he was very close to me and, and he played the entirety of his album in order, but then he started to play some more songs and, you know, it was a work night and I was ready to leave, but I felt like Eric Johnson and I had made eye contact mm-hmm. so frequently that I thought, you know what? If I was sitting in the back row, it wouldn't be a big deal, but I don't want to offend Eric Johnson by getting up <laughs> from my first row seat and, and walking out of this theater. So I just kind of endured, and I felt as if I got uh, a look of appreciation for him, although I, I'm probably I, the, in my the, head. The, the, the truth <laughs> of it is, and you never sat in the front row again. Is that the no, moral of the story? No, no, no. <laughs> no but I, I was going to say, it, it actually would have, it would have maybe not rattled him because at that point in his career he'd probably yeah. seen that a lot but for sure he would have noticed and for sure he noticed you there you know i can say that i can definitely say that as a performer that was one thing that shifted for me moving from being like music lover to performer was not realizing the degree to which artists are listening to and paying attention to everything that's happening in the room and i used to be you know go to shows of artists i love but i'd be at the bar talking to a friend while they're like playing a really intimate song and you know all these things because you're just like you love the music you love your friend you're just you're you're not you're you don't have any self-consciousness as an audience member or or sometimes you do but it's it's rare that you do yeah and artists do feel all that stuff and see it and you can you know you can really tell and it and it can be hard even if you know it's like not you know you're, you're not to take any of that stuff personally and sometimes people leave because they have work the next day and sometimes you know there's like very good reasons why sometimes people haven't seen their friend in a year and like of course they're <laughs> going to talk to your show yeah i stuck it out i'm proud to say <laughs> well that, that was i'm sure eric appreciated it it was it was what you made the right choice great i felt i owed it to the entire yeah. uh, the entire <laughs> theater <sighs> well thank you so much uh, this is better than I I thought it could have been. So oh, thank you cool. very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was really fun talking to you guys. And um, Greg, what um, book did you write? Or you said you're a public published author. Tim mentioned uh, poetry and some literary journals. Uh, I've I've done some like ebooks on uh, on Amazon, and I'm working. I'm finishing a memoir right now. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Okay. 
Well, um, keep me posted on all that. And um, best of luck with this new podcasting venture. Um, I'm going to just put this out there because why not? Um, Do you, any of you, do either of you guys have um, ghost stories, any personal ghost stories? It wasn't deeply personal to me, but um, when I I was a president of an art school in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and I had a colleague uh, and became a friend whose mother was back in, I think, Kansas or Nebraska. And she was ill and, and he was worried about her. And, and you know, she, her prognosis was fairly bleak. And so he was perpetually on edge waiting for a call with bad news from his dad. And um, one morning we were just having our coffee, chatting. And he said, you know what, I had a really vivid dream of my mom last night. And she was standing at the foot of my bed. And I, she's like, he was like, uh, Greg, I felt like I could touch her, you know, and then I just kind of drifted back asleep and she was gone. And the words were still in the air when he received a telephone call. And he's like, oh my God, that's, that's funny. It's my dad calling. And his father was calling to tell him that his mother had passed in the night. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, Gave me goosebumps. Yeah. That gives me goosebumps too. I'm, I'm asking because I'm doing like one of the too many things I'm doing things is um, my keyboard player, Lisa, and I uh, are obsessed with paranormal like ghost Ooh. stories and podcasts of that sort. And um, we're really obsessed. You guys are probably familiar with Snap Judgment, the podcast. Oh, yeah. On oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. NPR. I'm not, no. um, but anyways, they have the Snap Judgment spooked, which is like the scary Snap Judgment. And it's just very well produced. And anyway, so... Lisa and I are kind of doing our own version of oh, cool. like, it's like a not, it's like a nod to spooked. It's not spooked at all. Cause that's a whole other, it's its own thing, but yeah. But anyway, so I'm collecting, I'm in the process of collecting and doing interviews for very cool, scary things. But anyways, Greg, that's a good one to know. And, um, we have discussed like doing like dream synchronicity things mm. in the future. So, um, I, if, if you're open to it, I will reach We're out to you open. Be and you honor. can return yeah. the, the favorite that'd be great yeah. and uh you know be on our uh our nerdy ghost podcast i i actually you know <laughs> I, I listen to very few comedy podcasts ironically interesting I, I like interviews and i like paranormal stuff i like ghost stories like the the unexplained i love that podcast one. yeah is a great podcast and and one of those i love the scripted podcasts too that are kind of like old style radio programs mm. right yeah and, and one that actually deeply frightened me like i would listen to it because i loved it at night but i would get up and i'd lock my bedroom door and i would call my dog and i'd be like cooper get up here and i I wanted his company and it was uh the black tapes it's oh yeah 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 i love that that podcast yeah and it really creeped me out some of it yeah 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 that one was really good it was so creepy and very well done I'm i'm glad to hear you're also a fan of that kind of thing my my wife and I went to Charleston this summer, and we took a uh, a walking paranormal tour with a gentleman who does a, a podcast as well. But he's you know Charleston has a lot of ghost stories, and so he equipped us like we were on ghost adventures with like these you know the meters that can detect things in like you know uh, electronic voice phenomenon recorders and stuff mm-hmm. and then after the tour he analyzed us and he sent us the data like Greg as you were talking we heard the word. Mary, you know, or whatever it was. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I guess well, I guess you can't grow up in, around antiques and not be no, into, true. you know, history and the ghosts of, you know, the past. 
So true. Um, it was great talking to you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes. Really nice likewise. to meet you and best of luck with this. Keep me posted how it goes. Good to see you guys. Take Bye. care. Nice to meet yes. you. Yes. Thank you. Goodbye. Stranded in a snowstorm in a town. You forgot. I'd take advantage of a warm car and I reassess my life. So many years I've given up and now my use in shot I take my place among the truckers and I show them what I got I told the stripper at the bar that the shots we got were She smiled her golden tooth glint in the light And I want what she wished for I just wish for you They say everything is possible But I'll know that it's not true Especially not when Never the same